Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. It says, while he, this is Jesus, was still speaking to, to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my brother, mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, as we take some time to unpack these verses, um, let's just first deal with the fact that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this, but not too much. But we need to, because unfortunately, there are denominations in Christendom that teach that Jesus, that Mary's still a virgin, and that there were no brothers and sisters. But the Bible is extremely clear that Jesus had brothers and sisters, um, and I want to just kind of show you that in Scripture, and we'll go from there. Go to Matthew chapter one, real quick. <clears throat> go to Matthew chapter one. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, here we see the scripture clearly says that he had no sexual relationship with Mary until after she had given birth to Jesus. But it's worded in such a way that is very clear that he did, but it was after Jesus was born. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 53 through 58. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, this is Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Here the scripture not only says he had brothers and sisters, it names some of them. James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. By the way, keep those names in your mind because that's going to be important in just a little bit. He even said he had sisters. I call them, I call them uh, half brothers and half sisters, if you will, because... They all had the same mother, but they had a different father. Jesus' father was who? God, the Holy Spirit. James and Joseph. And Jude, the, the, whose father was he? Where, the, where, they, where did they have? Joseph. So they, he had half-brothers and half-sisters. Mary is not still a virgin. My wife, Becky, and I have been blessed to have three kids. I don't call her the Virgin Becky anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> Even though she was when we got married. Go to Mark chapter 3. Look at verses 31 through 35. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And this is an account of the exact same story we're looking at in Matthew, but this is Mark's account, and I want you to look at Mark's for a reason. We're going to come back to it in a second. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who were my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So put a bookmark here in Mark 3, because we're going to come back to it in just a little bit. Go to Mark chapter 6, though, and look at verses 1 through 6. Now we see Mark's account of what we just saw uh, in Matthew 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where does this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. So here again we see Mark's account of that same situation and that we read about in Matthew 13. And again we see that the brothers and sister, sisters are listed. For your own sake, write this down, look at it later on if you want. Luke chapter 8 verses 19 through 21 is another account. But I want to take you to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 10. It 
In John chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths, it's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, by the way, the Feast of Booths was at hand, and so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his own brothers believed in him. So here at this point, his own brothers, which we know some of their names, don't believe in him. And they say, look, you want to be a public figure? Why don't you go show yourself at the feast? Now's a good time. Interestingly enough, though, I don't know if all of you know this, at least two of his brothers became believers. You want to know who they are? James and Jude. Remember James and Judas? You know how we know? Because they're actually, in your Bible, James wrote the book, the one that wrote the book of James is not James of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. It's actually James, Jesus' half-brother, who wrote the book of James. Oh, and by the way, if you ever go back and look at it, you'll see at the beginning of the book, he describes himself as a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a brother really coming to faith? I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge your brother did better than you, maybe, but to say, that man is my Lord. I'm his slave. Jude as well. The book of Jude was written by Jesus's half-brother. And so, folks, let me just say this to you. Um, Mary had other children. All right. Let's move on from there. All right. But go back to Mark chapter three, because Mark brings out something in the episode that we're studying in Matthew 12 that isn't brought out in the other accounts. And it'll be helpful for us. Remember in Mark chapter 3, we saw in verse 31, and his, Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Does anybody know why they actually went to this house? Jesus was teaching in this house in Capernaum, and there's so many people they couldn't even get to him. So they're outside the house, and they send word that they want him to come out because they're there. Does anybody know why they were there? No, it's not for the wedding. They thought he was crazy. Go up to verses 20 and 21. Look at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and this is Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now we got to stop for a second. Who's now thinking that Jesus is out of his mind? Mary. This is the same Mary that... If there's anybody that knows that this child was from God, it's Mary, all right? And she's the one who saw the wise men come and, and the, the shepherds come and had the visit from the angels and all these things that happened. She's the one that was pondering all these things in her heart. She's the one who had enough faith knowing what kind of a person he was and the power he had to tell the servants at the wedding feast, hey, whatever he says, just do it. Do it whatever he says when it came to the turning the water to wine. Yet at this point, He's acting in such a way and drawing crowds and teaching, as you're going to see tonight, in parables that Mary and his brothers think he's lost his mind. It reminds me of our study back in Matthew chapter 11 about John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist is sitting in prison? And this is the same John the Baptist that said, I didn't know who he was until the one who sent me to baptize told me the one you see the spirit come down on. That's the one baptize him. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. That's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, if anybody knew who Jesus was, John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. And, and John the Baptist is watching Jesus and he's not acting like he thought he would. And he sends word with his disciples saying, are you the one or should we look for another? Folks. If Mary and John the Baptist had times of confusion because of how Jesus did things, you and I will as well. But as you're going to see as we get into our study tonight, especially as we move into chapter 13, because I'm going to show you that Mark 12 and Mark 13 connect each other. As we get in further tonight, you're going to see how we respond in those times when Jesus doesn't do things the way we think he should or the way he, we thought he would will show whether or not we really have salvation. There's going to be those times of testing of our faith that will either prove our faith genuine or prove that our faith is not real. But don't put God in a box to the point that he has to do things the way you think he will or think he should. He's God. I love how in the Chronicles of Narnia, as uh, C.S. Lewis is writing, and he describes the lion, uh, the lion Aslan, which of course represents Jesus. And they say, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. And folks, we have to be in this year to come willing to let Jesus be Jesus. 
and not have our mindset of how he's going to act and how he's not going to act. He's never going to go against his word. But let me just tell you, he's always going to probably surprise you with how he does things. Didn't he say back in Isaiah 55, your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways aren't my ways. But how often have we exactly as my my ways are higher than yours. The, the thing is this. How often, though, have we thought I thought he was going to. If Mary and John the Baptist both had times where they were questioning don't be surprised if you do, but it's how you respond in those times that he disappoints you or surprises you or confuses you that will determine whether or not your salvation is real. Jesus now, go back to Matthew 12. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the importance, though, of eternal spiritual relationship with Christ. Back to Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus with his family there and word is spread. And the man comes to Jesus in front of all these people and says, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. And Jesus says, who are actually my mother and my brother? Who's my family? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, those who, this is my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of my father or my mother and my brothers. In other words, these are my family now. I want you to hear, the Bible actually says, when we through faith believe that Jesus is not only God himself, but God's son, and that he came and he took on human form and he lived in a human body without sin, was crucified in our place, paid our penalty, rose from the dead by his own power. And we by faith say, you're God and I need your forgiveness and I need your cleansing. And I'll only get to heaven if you just give it to me as a gift and I receive you as my savior. When we do that, the Bible says we enter into a relationship with God where we become family. We become a part of his family. Go back to John chapter one. John chapter one. We're going to get to that passage in a little bit. In John chapter one, look at verses 10 through 13. John says, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here he said, for those who do receive him, who believe in his name, who believe that he is who he says he is. Listen closely. When you believe in his name, you're believing in who he says he is. Not who you think he is, but who he says he is. There's people that will knock on your door and they claim to be Christians and they'll say they believe Jesus is the son of God. But if you ask them, do you believe that Jesus is God? They'll say no. There are other people that are out there riding bicycles and they're going to knock on your door and they will say that they believe Jesus is the son of God. They also believe Satan was his brother. And if you ask them, do you believe Jesus is God himself? They'll say no. These people do not believe in his name. They believe in who they think he is. The Bible says the true definition of those of us who are truly in the family of God are those who believe that he is who he says he is. And he, without question, throughout the scriptures, declared himself to be God as well. So go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 3. I love this. See what kind, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children when? Now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I love that. John said we're God's children now. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 14 through 17, the passage you were just quoting. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That means Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Folks, if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, don't miss that first part. You're God's child. Some of you that have had children, maybe everybody in here for the most part has had children, uh, except Tim, maybe. Yeah. Except for the most part. Yeah, he's not alone. See, you're not alone. But for those that have had children, you have a, a deeper understanding of what we're talking about. You might not even had children that have been fully obedient. But at the same time, your love for them, you couldn't put into words, correct? There's something that God does in teaching us about his love when we have children. Because we all of a sudden understand, you know what? There's nothing this child could do that would make me say there's no longer my child. And you have become the child, children of God. And I want you to understand that he sees you in that way. He doesn't see you as a servant. He doesn't even see you as a friend anymore. You say, wait a minute, Jimmy doesn't see me as a friend. Oh, no. If you go back, I'm not going to have you take the time to turn there to John chapter 15. Jesus said, um, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends because a friend doesn't know what his master's. A friend knows what his master's doing. And I'm going to show you everything the father's doing. But in John chapter 20, something else happened. Go to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we'll start in verse 11. This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That morning, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the father, but go to my what? My brothers and say to them, I'm sending, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Look at that. He says, go tell my brothers. Why? Because he had paid the price for their sins. And by his rising from the dead, he had accomplished their salvation. And when we, by faith, receive him, we become family of God and co-heirs and brothers and sisters with Christ. That's a wonderful thing. By the way, that's why throughout the Bible, you'll see people use the terms brother or sister. And I'm going to get to that in just a little bit. But before I do, let me just say this too, though. Jesus was not saying that once we enter God's family through faith, we're to neglect our earthly families. There's a lot of Christians, unfortunately, over the years that have tried to say, well, I'm a part of God's family now. And so I'm not going to really care for my family because I've, I've entered a more important family and they ignore their earthly families. And I want to show you scripturally, the Bible teaches if someone actually will ignore their earthly family because their spiritual family is more important. The person that says that probably doesn't have the spiritual family relationship. Go to John chapter 19. You're in 20. Go to 19. Look at verses 25 through 27. Jesus is on the cross near the end of his life. And in John chapter 19, verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, if you remember from what we read earlier, when Jesus went to his hometown, you notice how they never mentioned really Joseph. They said, one account said, isn't this the carpenter's son? The other account said, isn't this the carpenter himself? And his mother's name is Mary. There's strong evidence that Joseph at some point died. Because we don't really ever see him mentioned after the story of coming out of Egypt and so on. And his mother and him looking for Jesus when he was in the temple. But beyond that, we don't see him anymore. And chances are, part of the reason why Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years old, part of that is because that's when a priest took on their role. At the same time, was because being the eldest boy, he was responsible for the household because the father had died. And here now, with his mother standing there, he realizes, as I go, she needs to be taken care of. 
And he turns to John and he turns to Mary and he says, you guys now, John, take care of her. And Jesus cared for his mother even as he was dying. Go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to chase this rabbit too long, but this is a section of scripture that deals with something that is passionate to me, especially for my years of being a pastor. Unfortunately, there's this attitude in the community, especially in America, that the church is supposed to pay the bills for the community. If someone's in need in the community, they go to the church because they expect the church to pay their light bill or to give them gas money and all that stuff. And I'm not saying churches should never do that. But if you do a study of scripture, you will see that the scripture actually teaches that the benevolence offerings, the giving of the church is to meet the needs of the body within the body. If you do a study of scripture, you'll find that if someone was outside the church and there was a need, individuals from the church would meet that need. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. He sees this guy in need and he personally takes care of this man out of his own pocket. He didn't say go to the synagogue or go to the church to have it taken care of. He took care of it out of his own pocket. I'm not saying the church should never meet someone's need outside the church. But listen to me, the attitude where it's just expected, the church will pay the bills of people. Actually, if you do the scriptures, you'll see it over and over. The benevolence of the church, the giving of the church to the needs of the body was to take care of the people within the body first. And look at the first Timothy chapter five. Uh, we'll look at verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see it? There's going to be widows in the church who are really widows and they've got no one to take care of them. The Bible says the church should be taking care of them and then they give instructions for that. But if there's widows in the church who still have relatives, they should be taking care of them first. Repaying them for those years that they took care of their kids. And this is pleasing in the sight of God. So does the Bible teach that if once I enter the family of God that I'm to ignore my family? No, actually, I should be treating my family even better now that I'm a part of the family of God. Jesus was taking this opportunity of his earthly family being there to illustrate the need and opportunity for people to come into Jesus' family. But go back to Matthew chapter 12, though. Look at what he says when he points to his disciples and he says, these are my mother and my brothers. Look at what he says, though. He says, uh, verse 49. He said, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, you've already had it shown you earlier tonight, but we'll see if you're paying attention. What is the will of the father that we are to do in order to become his family? To believe in his name. Remember, believe in the name that he has for himself and who he says he is. Go to John chapter 6. It can't get any more clear. Go to John chapter 6 and look at verses 28 and 29. The Jews actually asked him this question specifically. In John chapter 6 verse 28, they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You enter into his family not by doing good works, you enter his family by believing that he is who he says he is. And you put your faith in him. And that's when you become part of the family of God. You believe in the one that he sent. Now, as we wrap up this section before we get into chapter 13, let me say this. If we become part of God's eternal family through faith in Jesus, well, let me ask you a question before I go any further. How many of you are able today, because the Spirit's testified with your spirit, you know that if you died today, you'd go to heaven because you know that you are a child of God and you're in the family of God. That's awesome. Well, let me ask you a question, though, or point this out to you at the same time. If we become part of God's eternal family through faith in Jesus, that makes all of us family in Christ right now. That's why Jesus called his disciples brothers. That's why you go look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and verses 9 and 10. You'll see throughout, and there's lots of places, the church would call each other brothers and sisters. Sometimes, though, in earthly families, siblings may rub each other the wrong way. 
Sometimes in earthly families, siblings may rub each other the wrong way. She's touching me. She's sitting too close to me. She's in my, actually, I don't know how many of you know this. Uh, maybe none of you, but Jer might not even remember this. My, my sister was, is the oldest. There's five kids in our family. My sister, Norma, named after my mom, is the oldest. And then I was born. And she wanted a sister, but I was born. But then she wanted a sister, and John was born. And then she really wanted a sister, and Jeff was born. And she really wanted a sister, and Jeremy was born. She decided by the time Jeremy was born, literally, she wanted nothing to do with him. Wouldn't look at him, wouldn't acknowledge that he was there. They brought him home. Jeremy did not exist. So my parents, very wisely, put Jeremy's crib in my sister's room. She had had her own room because she was the only girl and the boys had been sharing a room. And actually all four of us shared a room for a long time. Jeremy and I actually shared, I hate to say this, but Jer and I shared a bed until I was 16 years old. And then my parents built a bedroom in the basement and he and I had our own beds. But for the first years of his life, Jeremy, after he moved out of mom and dad's care, was in a crib in my sister's room because my parents said, uh, you're family. You will acknowledge. And Jeremy will tell you, that his sister and he have a tight relationship and they Skype every single week even though she lives in Michigan. Sometimes siblings rub each other the wrong way. Listen to me. But you're still family. And that supersedes the differences. So too with Christ's family. Our being made brothers and sisters should supersede any of our differences. And the Bible actually says if you've got a problem with your brother or your sister and you've stopped talking to them, go get it right. Because your heavenly father, who's your father, and there are times when our kids would misbehave and I would say, you're going to get this figured out because you're family. Listen to me. If you have an issue with a brother or a sister in Christ, your father is going to be making sure that that's going to get taken care of. And you don't want him to amp up his discipline. <laughs> Deal with it. And I'll just let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Go to Matthew 13. Go to Matthew 13. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 23. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 23. We're going to cover most of it tonight, but not all of it. That same day. Did you see that? Do you see how it's connected? That same day. Remember, Jesus was in the house and there's so many people that they couldn't get to him. Mary and his brothers couldn't get to him. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. And immediately they sprung, sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And the, since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, for he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, with their ear, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Thus they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. 
That is what was sown on the path. And as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, like we've just said, this, this is connected with what we just read at the end of chapter 12. Now, that doesn't happen very much in Matthew. Remember, Matthew compiles things. Other Gospels will say this happened and this happened. Matthew takes segments of Jesus' life and kind of puts them together in segments. But in this situation, he points out that that same day, actually the Holy Spirit is the one who points out that that same day that he left the house, he went and he began teaching many parables, especially this one. Jesus left the crowd at the house he was in, went down to see a galley, and got into a boat to teach the large crowd that followed him and met him there. He began to teach them using parables, and one of the parables he taught them was what we know as the parable of the soils. He said to the large crowd of apparent followers that some seeds that... That, that the sower sows, went, uh, that went, sower went out to sow, fell on the hard path, and the birds came and quickly ate the seeds. Other seeds fell on rocky soil, and immediately something sprung up because the soil wasn't deep. That's important. We'll get to that in a little bit. It said because the soil wasn't deep, but when the heat of the sun hit what had sprung up, it withered because it had no roots. Other seeds fell on the thorny soil, and even though the seed sprouted and the thorns grew with it, sorry, the seed sprouted, the thorns grew with it and choked the seed and it died. Now you say, Jim, I don't remember it saying in here that the thorns grew with it. It's true. In Matthew, it didn't. Go with me real quick to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to show you Luke's account of this because Luke brings out something that's very valuable. And again, I cannot stress to you enough as you read the Gospels, uh, find the other places in the other Gospels that the same episode is told because there's so much more that's added when you put it all together. And Luke chapter 8, look at verses 4 through 8. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns. Listen, this will be important in a little bit tonight. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. That's important. We'll come to that in a little bit. But other seeds fell on thorny soil, and even though the seeds sprouted, the thorns grew with it and choked the seed, and it died. Now some seed fell on good soil and produced a crop of grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you go back to Matthew 13 and look at verses 10 through 17, you'll remember as we read through there, there was a section that's a little bit hard for some of us. It's been given to you to understand, but it's not been given to them. The one who has will be given more. The one he doesn't have, what he doesn't have will be taken. What even what he has will be taken away. I'm going to tell you right now, you've got to come next week. We will deal with verses 10 through 17 next week. I can't wait to show you what it says because it doesn't say what some of you have been told it says. And I can't wait to show it to you. But we're going to take a whole study problem to just deal with verses 10 through 17. That's next week. So what we're going to do in the time we have left tonight is just deal with the explanation of this parable. All right. Now, Mark's gospel, though, shows us that Jesus's explanation of the parable was given to the disciples when they were alone with Jesus. As we just read it, it sounds like all this happened in front of the crowd from the boat. Again, that's why you got to look at all the gospel accounts. Go to Mark chapter uh, four. Mark chapter four. Look at verses 1 and following. It says, Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, 
food, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How well then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word and those these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy and they have no root in themselves, but render, sorry, endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So as we see from Mark, it appears that actually Matthew 13 verses uh, 10 through 23 all happened after he was done teaching from the boat when he was alone and the disciples and some other people were there. So this whole section that we're going to break down next week, verses 10 through 17, and the verses we're going to look at tonight, verses 18 through 23, happened in a privater setting, if you will, and Jesus is teaching in a smaller group. Now, as Jesus explains this parable, I want to take some time to help you see something in his explanation. In both Matthew and Mark's account, Jesus clearly says that even though the hard path, the rocky soil, and the thorny soil don't respond to the seed properly, the seed was sown in their hearts. See, a lot of us have been told, oh, the seed fell on the hard path and the birds came and took it away. They didn't even have a chance. Oh, I want you to look at what the scripture actually says. Go back to Matthew 13. Look closely at verse uh, 16, sorry, 18. In verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what? What was sown where? It was sown in his heart. Don't miss that. Go over to the next verse. As for the one who was, uh, that was what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and he doesn't have any root, and he goes away. Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who, see it, hears the word. Look at verse 23. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word. Go over to Mark chapter 4. You'll see it in there as well. They clearly show that all of the soils heard the word, and it was planted and sown in their hearts. Look at verse uh, 14 of chapter 4. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away what was sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it. Again, you go to verse, uh, put my glasses on, 18. Others are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the seed from the riches and desire for other things enter in and choke the word. And again, you see in verse 20, the, the, the good soil hears the word and accepts it and it bears fruit. Folks, don't miss this. Everybody hears. Everybody hears. The Bible's very, very clear. Go to James chapter 1. It's right, it's been there all along in James chapter 1. Look at verses 21 through 25. Go for it. Oh, without question. That's part of it. We're going to deal with that next week. We're going to we'll deal with all that next week. You got to come next week because we're going to break down the to you. It's been given to them. It's not been given. Why? And you're going to see some other things tonight that I'm going to say next week. But for now, I just want you to see what James even says in chapter one, verses 21 through 25. It says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? The answer is both. Both. Just because he's writing to people in the church doesn't mean they're all saved. You're going to see that tonight. There are going to be those who spring up or amongst us who sure look like they are. But time's going to tell whether or not they really are. 
and the word was implanted. Everybody hears, but then he goes on in that same place. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, listen, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. I want you to see this. John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All right? And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will, how many? All be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone is taught. Everyone hears. The word is sown in their hearts. But there's going to be a bunch of different responses. We're going to get into the specifics of that a little bit tonight, a lot more next week. Listen, some people hear, but they don't understand it. But instead of searching deeper, they let the enemy take it away, and they do nothing with it, and it's gone. Some people hear and respond too quickly the Bible says they aren't deep. Remember, their soil wasn't deep. The, actually, the Bible actually says in, in uh, Luke chapter uh, 14, you can look at it, write it down and look at it later on. For the sake of time, I won't have time to read it to you tonight. But in Luke 14, 25 through 33, Jesus says, count the cost before you say yes to following me. You don't just say, hey, that sounds great. I like that sign of just believing in you and I get to go to heaven. I like the idea of getting forgiven of my sins. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Jesus, I believe it. Jesus actually says, no, count the cost before you say yes. And there are those who hear the gospel. It sounds great. Those promises are pretty good. All I got to do is just believe, pray this prayer, no problem. But they're not deep. And they have no root in themselves, even though they try to and they look like they might even fooled us. But over time, it become evident. It becomes evident that their response wasn't real because when trouble comes because of Christ, they walk away because they had no root. Bible says their salvation wasn't real. Let me ask you a question. Was Mary and John the Baptist's salvation real? But wait a minute, didn't Mary say, I think you're crazy? Didn't John the Baptist say, I'm not sure you're the one anymore? Oh, but over time, when trouble came because of the word, they stuck. They didn't walk away. John left in his mother's stomach, Jesus left in the room. Yes. That's right. Folks, let me just tell you, the Bible's clear that we're all going to go through times where we don't understand what he's doing. But for those of us who are truly saved, the Bible says the evidence of our salvation is the fact that we stick in the trials. Second Peter chapter one, verse three and following talks about verse six, especially says these trials have come. Sorry, first Peter chapter one, verse six. These trials have come to prove your faith genuine. Some seed, though, are people well, go to John chapter 6. We're, we, we, go to John 6. We're in John 6. Look at verses 60 through 69. When many of Jesus' disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? He had just said to everybody, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Upon hearing this, they said, this is hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. He's talking to his disciples, by the way, folks. Did you catch that? But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Look at that. Nobody can come to me, Jesus said, unless it's granted to him by the Father. Guess what I'm going to explain that verse? Next week. <laughs> That's when we're going to deal with this verse. I promise you, we will deal with this verse next week. It's, it's pretty cool when you see it all come together from the scriptures. Now, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We read it in chapter 8 of Romans, 
where it said, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided. We suffer with him. Exactly. So that we may also be glorified with him. That doesn't sound like the kind of preaching we're hearing in America, though, today, is it? We've been taught that, man, you just sign in with Jesus and you're going to be wealthy and not going to be sick and you're going to be of all this stuff. No, the Bible doesn't promise that your life will get easier once you get saved. The Bible actually says, actually, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, and all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The suffering that we go through, what's to be rewarded is not worth comparing the suffering we're going to go through, but we're going to go through suffering. So some people appear to respond, but when trouble comes, they walk away. That's, I know of many of people that they used to believe in God. I used to go to church. I used to believe in God, but I prayed that Mama wouldn't die, and Mama died. And I want nothing to do with him. You probably know many people like that as well. Some people hear and appear on the surface to respond, but listen closely. They live too much in the world and of the world at the same time so that the world chokes the, world chokes the word out. Remember how we saw, and I brought out to you that Luke said that the, the, the thorns grew with it? There are those who claim the name of Christ who go to church, but they also are playing in the world at the same time. Jesus said, we're to be in the world, but not of it. We're not, you can't get out of the world. We're going to be in the world. He wants to use us in this world, but we're not to be like them, and we're not to act like them and look like them or love the things they love. But there are many who claim Christ, who aren't Christians, who claim Christ, who are in the church and in the world just as much. And let me just tell you, if you're one of those people here tonight or you're listening online, the world is going to win because you really don't have salvation. If you're happy doing both, you are not really saved. Because those of us who are truly saved do not enjoy the things of the world. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I'm not saying that if those of us, are, those, we're not saved if we're enticed by the things of the world. But when you do fall prey to it, do you love it? No. Those who think it's okay, the Bible says watch out. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So that wasn't Jim Johnson saying it. That was the Lord. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. As we raised our children, and now they're in their 20s, we had to come alongside of them and say, look, having a cell phone and internet connection is not a bad thing, but you got to be careful. Having a television and watching things is not a bad thing. Going to the movies is not a bad thing, but you've got to be careful. You've got to be able to let the Spirit of God show you what to be a part of and what not to be a part of. What is okay and what's not okay. And I don't want you following mom and dad's rules because one day mom and dad aren't going to be here. And one day mom and dad aren't going to be where you're at college or when you move away from home. And, and you're going to think, well, the mom and dad aren't here to watch anymore. We want to let you listen to the Spirit of God because he's going to show you. Be careful. Watch out. But if you get sucked into all this stuff and you think you can be your Christian and have this worldly life as well, the Bible says in time it'll be evident that you really never had salvation if you're okay playing both sides. Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me. There's no fence. By the way, you can write this down, look at it later on. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, the first part of verse 9, Paul says, Demas, who is in love with the world, has left me. Demas was a, actually a follower of Jesus, apparently. And he even helped Paul in his ministry and was traveling with ministry, with Paul's ministry. But there came a point where Demas said, you know what, I'm just going to go back to what I like. And Paul said, he's in love with the world and he's left. Folks, the Bible says that those of us who, I think we read it earlier, follow the perfect law and persevere in it are the ones who are truly saved. That's the good soil, folks. Some people hear the word and consider the cost. They live in the world, but they're not of it. And their belief is real and abides forever because it is God who knows the heart, and he's the one who gives us his spirit to dwell in us, to seal us as his forever. Remember, we've talked about this last time we were together, how when you are saved, God seals you with his spirit, and he makes you eternally secure. But the only way you'll know you're really saved is if he's given you his spirit. That's the only way you'll know, is if he's given you his spirit. Go real quickly to John chapter 2.
John chapter 2, look at verses 23 through 25. Now when Jesus, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Listen. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. By the way, how many of you have ever said, she's really a good person? And she's, he's a good boy. No, Jesus knows their real heart. And here are people that believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing, and they believed. And we all thought, cool, we just had so many new members in our church. And we even counted them. But Jesus never entrusted himself to them. Does the scripture say very clearly that Jesus knows who's really going to be saved and who's not? Didn't we already see that tonight? He knew in that group of people who really was going to believe and who wasn't. No matter what they said to him, he knew. And in the same way, when Jesus sees somebody say, I believe, he already knows whether or not it really is faith. And if he knows it's not going to continue in real faith, he won't give his spirit to them. This is important for us in a lot of ways. One, if he's given you his spirit, though, you're his. He doesn't want you to worry about whether or not you're going to lose your salvation. There's too many preachers out there trying to make a living on making people doubt or question if they're really saved. The Bible already said his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his. That's something that God takes care of. And on top of that, if he's already confirmed in your spirit that you're his and you know you're his, and it doesn't matter what he does or doesn't do or how he acts, and you're going to keep following, as, as Job said, even if he slays me, I'll trust him. If you're there, the Bible says that he gives evidence of his spirit within us. And Jesus himself, go to John. We're in John chapter 2. Go to chapter 6 and then chapter 10. Go to chapter 6. Listen to verses 35 through 40. In John 6, verse 35 Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's next week, by the way. All who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Folks, can it get any more clear than that? Jesus says, if you've been given to me by the Father, I'm never going to cast you up. Never. Go to John chapter 10. Look at verses 27 through 30. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, there it is again, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand and I and the Father are one. I've heard people say over the years, I know Jesus said no one can snatch them out of his hand, but we can walk out. No. Didn't Jesus already say in chapter 6, he'll lose none that the Father gave him, and he'll never cast anybody out? If they walk out, that's when he'll, he'll cast you out, but he'll never cast you out, because as the Bible says, if you walk away, you never had it. Where does it say that, Jim? I'm glad you asked. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, real quick. We're going to wrap up here. 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 18 and following. First John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. So if they walked away, 
Did they have it and they walked away? No, they never had it. And we're going to deal with that in a lot more detail next week as we deal with what does it mean that the, father, the ones the Father gives me. And, and, and we're, it's just, I can't wait to show it to you. So I had to stop myself because I almost got into it right now. As we close tonight, if God knows who's for real, how will we know? How will we know? How will we know? Right, through fruit. We'll know, first off, about ourselves, because, about ourselves first of all, because the Spirit will confirm our, within, our, within us. But on top of that, how will we begin to recognize it in the people around us? The fruit, listen, the fruit of the Spirit, but over time. There are going to be some people that sure look good for a time, and they may fool you. But over time, the evidence of the Spirit. Now, this is important, though. I want you to hear me. Because as I travel the country, and my, the goal God's given me, and the ministry God's given me, is to travel to the church, mainly in America, and to get them ready for His return, and back to the Word, and what it really means to know the word, whole of Scripture, and what it needs to be led of the Spirit biblically. And as I do, I deal with so many quote-unquote Christians, and I'm, I'm not being mean, but with, with white hair who actually say, I know I'm okay, I'm good. But there's no evidence of the salvation. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no patience, there's no kindness, there's no gentleness. There's no evidence of the Spirit, but they know how to say the right thing, talk the game, they're regular in church, they'll never miss a Sunday, but there is no growth in their walk with Jesus Christ. Go with me real quickly to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we wrap this up tonight. 2 Peter Chapter 1. Look at verse 3. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are what? Increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're truly the good soil, there's going to be a crop. Some are 100, some are 60, some are 30. But there's going to be evidence over time of a continual growing in your walk with Jesus Christ. You're going to look more and more like him, not less and less. And unfortunately, and you know them yourselves, there are many people in our churches today that as they've gotten older, they look less and less like Jesus. They're hard to deal with. They're judgmental. They're cranky. I'm being nice. Don't be one of those people. And as we wrap up, let me just say this to you as well. Some produce bigger crops than others. Some are 100, some are 60, some are 30. Seek to allow God to do through you all that he desires, but don't hurt yourself by playing the comparison game. In Matthew 25, Jesus told the parable of the talents, and he gave one five, another two, another one, each according to their ability. And if you look at that story, the one who had the five that it turned into ten, and the one that had the two that turned into four, Jesus said to both of them, well done. Don't be looking around comparing how much you're doing to somebody else. God shows us that there's a difference because there is going to be a difference. But it's so that we won't compare ourselves. But you better make sure that you're doing what God's called you to do. And let him do all that he wants to do through you. And Paul even puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If your gift is prophesying or preaching, do it in proportion to your faith. In other words, there are lots of people that God's gifted to preach, but they're all not gifted to preach in the same way or to the same size crowds. I got to be honest with you, the bigger the crowd, the more I love it. The smaller the crowd, it really is hard for me. 
Actually, I'm not real good with one-on-one discipleship. I'm very uncomfortable. I feel like a cat, long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I, but if you have a crowd of 70, 100,000 people, I can't wait to be the guy up there that speaks to the group because he's gifted me to speak to the bigger crowds and have them connect. That's how I'm wired. But there are some that they're gifted to teach the basics, 101, the 102 level classes of who is God and who is Jesus. And thank God for them because there are people out there. So stop saying, well, I like preacher so-and-so better than preacher so-and-so. Because that guy, boy, he can really preach. And that guy, listen to me. We're not all gifted the same way. And in the same way, don't compare yourself and your gifting to anybody else. You go be everything God's gifted you to be. And you will have fun as a Christian. And come back next week. Because all we did this week was talk about what's next week. And I can't wait to get there. I love you all. We'll see you next week.